When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, please open our eyes and our ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And would it change us to help us to grow more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Are you a dreamer or a realist? Have you been asked that before? Maybe uh, a personality quiz or interview? It's something that uh, we all have to balance to a degree. On the one hand, this world seems like such an ugly place at times. A place where ideals and, and virtues seem out of place. It seems like a, just a dog-eat-dog existence where the ruthless and the pragmatic are the ones that get ahead. On the other hand, without these ideals, without truth, beauty, love, does anything else we do matter? I think that we would all agree that it would be great to find a way to unite what's real and what's ideal. And I think we find that in the Bible. We find a way forward that isn't naive or superficial, but is true and beautiful at the same time. It's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that this tension can be resolved. The psalm we read just now shows us that it's in the mighty, redemptive work of God that we can find a dream beautiful enough to believe in, but also true enough to put our confidence in. I'd like to prove to you today from this text that because God has restored our fortunes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should dare to be the dreamers of Zion. Because God has restored our fortunes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should dare to be the dreamers of Zion. How do we do this? I think there's two themes in this text that we just read this morning. And we're going to explore those two themes. We're going to explore looking backwards in faith in God's accomplished restoration and also looking forwards in hope of God's final restoration. So let's start with our first theme, looking backwards in faith. In verse 1, we read that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Some of your translations here might say uh, return from captivity uh, instead of restores the fortunes of. And I think that gives us a clue as to the context of 
this psalm, when it was written, who it was written for. Um, The kingdom of Judah, one of the two kingdoms that was split from the reign of Solomon, was finally taken into exile for repeatedly violating the terms of God's covenant, for committing idolatry, for not following his law. And in God's mercy, this wasn't the final word. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, had spoken that this exile would last 70 years and then the exiles would be allowed to return back to their homes, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, and resume their worship of God. You can read about this account in Ezra 1, and I'm just going to read a little bit for you here. This is from Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And by the way, Zion is, is a hill that the city of Jerusalem was built on. So when we see Zion, we should think of Jerusalem. We should think of Israel. And so the exiles went home following this command and did it as they were commanded. And after they began re- rebuilding the temple, we can read a little bit about uh, what happened in Ezra 3. Their reaction to this outpouring of God's grace <clears throat> says that and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David king of Israel and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Psalm 126 was probably composed as one of these responsive psalms. And it would later on be incorporated into the liturgy of worship of Israel, and ultimately for us as Christians. It's a joyful song, but it's also mixed with sorrow. It's joyful because of the, this great deliverance that God had given out of sheer mercy to people that didn't deserve it. But at the same time, it's, there's a sense of loss and grief over what has been lost. 
Do you have fond memories from your childhood that you treasure? Do you have moments in time that you could just you just want to bottle up and keep with you and be able to relive again and again? I think that's what this, the psalmist is getting at when he when he uh, refers to their reaction as we were like those who dream. It was so vivid, so powerful, so beautiful, and yet it seemed too good to be true. Nostalgia is a powerful force, isn't it? Drives people to make all kinds of decisions, move back to where they first grew up. We can see it in um, our entertainment, TV shows, constantly recreating periods in the past. You can see it in fashion. People are always trying to bring back trends from 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I think what it shows is that all of us have this sort of deep-rooted desire for the good old days, when life was simpler and slower. It wasn't so complicated. Perhaps... Specifically in the church in America today, we long for the good old days of Christian America. When everybody went to church and there wasn't all this um, disagreement and, un- and dissension over moral values, issues like gender and sexuality. Didn't have to deal with all that back in the day. Yet I wonder if, if this is the extent of our longing for just better times. I wonder if we're dreaming big enough. I wonder if we're dreaming of Zion the way that God wants us to dream. We overlook the fact that there has never been a golden age in the church. The ancient church was persecuted relentlessly by the Roman Empire. And it had to deal with all sorts of sects and heretics that led people astray from the apostolic tradition. The medieval era of the church was marked by so much corruption and greed and vice that it led to the Reformation. The Puritans, for all of their rich theology and fervent piety, and for as much as we hold them up to be examples in the faith, and they are, nevertheless, they were unapologetic slave owners. I could go on and on, but I think I've made my point. Throughout redemptive history, God's people are called to look back, yes, but not on themselves, on their actions or the actions of their ancestors, but look back upon God, his actions, what he has done. Instead of looking to the past for a time when things were better. We must look to the past for the moment when the Lord restored our fortunes, when he freed us from captivity. And when is that for us on this side of the cross? I just gave away the answer. It's the cross, isn't it? It's Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection that freed us from the captivity that we were under 
to, slave, uh, to sin. It's Jesus who brought us back to Zion, who set us free, who gave us his spirit to enable us to worship God in spirit and truth. We can read in uh, Luke four sixteen to 20 of how Jesus himself saw how he fulfilled all of these great promises. I'll read, for, read it for you here. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were just were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, the restoration of the Jewish exiles in the Old Testament that we read about in Psalm 126 is not meant merely to call our attention to that, but to call our attention to what God has done for us through Jesus, his son. He did this for undeserving people like us who deserved to be away from his presence out of sheer grace and love for us. It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is a myth become fact. A myth become fact. I think that's just such an elegant way of putting it. Because it's too good to be true, and on the other hand, it's based upon Eyewitness accounts of events attested to in history. It's not a fairy tale. It's just better than any fairy tale we could ever dream up on our own. And it's a dream that we can all share if we turn to the Savior in repentance and faith. That's why the psalmist writes that we become like dreamers in the second half of verse 1. This gospel is so much bigger, so much more beautiful than anything else in this world. And it is to this gospel that we are called to respond to. In the first half of verse 2, the psalmist does so. He says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. The gospel is the source of our joy. Knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Nothing knowing that we don't bear any of the burden of our sin anymore. Knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is something that can sustain us no matter what comes in our life. And this is a joy that should be apparent to unbelievers even. Read the second half of verse 2. It says, Then they say, said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. Even the nations who surrounded Israel, who had constantly mocked and belittled 
and invaded and oppressed Israel. Yes, God used them to accomplish his judgment, but nevertheless, these wicked nations were forced to concede that God had done a great thing for them. I want to read to you uh, an excerpt from an article written in 2008 by a man named Matthew Paris. He's a British intellectual and columnist, but he grew up in Africa, and he wrote an article entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe God, Africa Needs God. So, intriguing title. Let's start there. And he writes, Traveling in Malawi refreshed a belief, one I'd been ban- uh, trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I'd say, that salvation is part of the package, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or a school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely in which I cannot help observing. First, then, the observation. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional African rural village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. Here's a man who himself states that he is clearly outside of the church of Jesus Christ. But he's willing to confess that the Lord has done great things for them. Brothers and sisters, the world is always watching us Did you know that? Especially if they find out you're a Christian. They're always watching you to see if your life reflects your faith. Are you marked by the joy and love that redeemed sinners ought to have? Does it fill your tongue with laughter? 
your mouth with shouts of joy? Or have you forgotten the great things that God has done for us? I fear in the American church especially, we're forgetful. Because I think that our natural reaction when beset by the world is to circle the wagons, batten down the hatches, get ready for a siege. Because our way of life, our beliefs are under attack. We complain that our right to say, God bless you and Merry Christmas is being taken away. The public school systems are being co-opted. The media is biased. Hollywood and higher education are dead set against anything that has to do with Christianity. I'm not saying that these things aren't true, and I'm not saying that these things aren't important. But in the fight for our faith, let's not forget the great things that God has done for us in Christ. If the way that we engage the world is characterized by the joy that this psalm speaks of, perhaps God will bring about more unbelievers who will be willing to confess that God has done great things for them. What can he do for me? Makato Fujimara, a Christian artist, um, writes that instead of engaging in culture war, we should engage in what he calls culture care instead. He says this, that culture care is an act of generosity to our neighbors and culture. Culture care is to see our world not as a battle zone in which we're all vying for limited resources, but to see the world of abundant possibilities and promise. Now, Again, I'm not saying that we're not called to speak truth, the truth of the Bible, to the world, because we are. But I think we can do so in a way that is characterized by joy, by love, rather than by resentment and bitterness and defensiveness. A way that is ultimately more winsome, I think, a way in which we can love our neighbors who don't share our faith. And we are called, we are commanded to love our neighbors, aren't we? But ultimately, no matter how well we witness to the watching world, no matter how often we reflect on the goodness of God's deeds accomplished for us in Christ, Something still is wrong, isn't it? We're still not quite there yet. We still live in a fallen, sinful world. And this leads me to the second way that we're called to dream. Through hope in God's final restoration. Hope in God's final restoration. In verse 4, the psalmist pivots all of a sudden from looking backwards what God has done in the past to looking forward in hope. He calls out to the Lord in verse 4, 
Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Wait, wait a second. I thought, I thought the Lord had already restored his fortunes. Why is he asking God to do this again? Well, even though some of the exiles had returned to Jerusalem and had begun rebuilding of the temple and resuming worship, there were still Jews left in Babylon who had not returned. And we know from history that Judah, or the land of Palestine, would be conquered by empire after empire, and that the Jews would be denied a homeland all the way up through the Roman Empire. The word of God would fall silent for 400 years until the arrival of Jesus. Similarly, even though we are forgiven and free from our sin, we still struggle with it, don't we? When we read the news and look at the world, we still see evil, tragedy, things that don't make sense. One of my friends... um, a missionary in Romania. He comes here, comes back to the States once a year to raise support. Um, just spoke with him last week. It's always a pleasure to see him. He was telling me that um, his aunt had overdosed on heroin and died just a week ago. She was a Christian that attended church faithfully and um, nobody saw it coming. What do you say to something like that? Well, luckily, I think the Bible does give us something to say. In verses 5 and 6, the psalmist writes, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We have joy right now, but it's mixed of sorrow. The Apostle Paul calls us a people that are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're doing the hard work of sowing, which I think here refers not only to uh, evangelism, church ministry, and you know Christian activities, but I think more generally to anything worth doing, to a life well lived, to whatever profession that we're in that we've dedicated our life to. But work is hard, isn't it? Uh, coworkers are difficult to work with. Bosses are petty. Um, and beyond our work, there's things that happen that don't make sense, like this tragic thing that happened to my friend's aunt. Um, and beyond that, even, when we look inside our hearts, we see that we're still struggling with the same sins that we did 10 years ago. 
No matter how much we read our Bibles, pray, and attend church, we're still struggling. What do we do? What do we do? Well, if you've ever watched the end of a marathon or some kind of long-distance race, which is probably the only part you want to watch anyways, um, what do you notice happens when you see the competitors get close to the finish line? These people that have been exerting themselves nonstop for hours and hours should have no energy left. Yet, they dig deep. They see the goal so close that they can taste it. And it causes them to double down, to push themselves beyond what they thought their limits were. I think that hope in the Christian life serves the same purpose for us. The Bible gives us these glimpses of God's coming restoration to lift up our flagging heads, to once again cry out to God for renewal and strength to continue the fight. Even though we're in the 12th round, bleeding and on the ropes, the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, writes in, uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. At the end of his life, a life filled with persecution and imprisonment and beatings and mocking. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, there is a crown of righteousness waiting for you. In the midst of the struggle and the hardships, there is something to look forward to. If you have loved the appearing of Jesus, rest assured that one day you will reign with God forever in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no suffering or tears or death for these former things will have passed away. It's a, it's a future that we don't know when it's going to happen. Um... But I just think about the end of verse 4 when the psalmist says, "Like, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was to the south um, a desert. And uh, if you know anything, maybe you watch some nature shows, you've seen accounts of flash floods in Arizona or Colorado. Right? It's dry as a bone. It's nothing. Then out of nowhere thunderstorms. These canyons just get filled with water and um, probably not good to be there when it happens, but it's kind of cool to imagine what it would look like. Life from death. And that's what God's grace is like, isn't it? Just all of a sudden turns us around and one day all of a sudden resurrection life like a thief in the night. This psalm 
is a solemn promise to us that full restoration and perfect communion with the triune God is coming for his people. So we've looked uh, backwards in faith at what Jesus did for us on the cross. We've looked forwards in hope at what uh, is promised to all those who have loved his appearing. And I want to end on some personal reflections on the psalm, specifically for, for our church, for CCPC, on this last Lord's Day worship service at West Hartford Town Hall. Some of you have been members here for many, many years, much longer than me. Some of you um, have just joined in the last year, or maybe even are just visiting today. No matter where you fall in this um, spectrum, you've probably learned that our church has gone through a fair bit of turmoil and transition over the last few years. We've had Uh, Many members leave. We've had elders leave. Our former pastor leave, all for various reasons. We spent a year without a full-time pastor before we hired Pastor Rob. Um, And now we're leaving this building where we've spent the better part of the last decade in worship. It's uh, pretty easy to imagine ourselves like the Jewish exiles, isn't it? Wandering without a home, waiting to see when we're going to get there. Maybe we long for the good old days of our church, perhaps, or maybe we're looking forward to one day in the future when we'll have our own building Um, and when there's lots more people. But I invite you to imagine, not imagine, to consider all the great things that God has done for us here in this building and outside this building. Consider the people, first of all, that have been saved, that have received the Lord Jesus through the ministry of this church. A miracle. Consider the people that have um, been sent as missionaries to the far corners of the earth to preach the gospel through this church. Consider the way that uh, this church has faithfully preached God's word and administered his sacraments. Consider how many people's lives have been blessed through that faithful ministry week after week, month after month, year after year. Think of all the friendships that have been born here in this church. All the different relationships. Um, Think of the children born here. (laughs) What a blessing they are. Um, Are these things not evidence of God's great power at work here? Can we not say along with the psalmist that the Lord has done great things for us? Think of all the times when people here have ministered God's grace to us in in tragedy 
in crisis. Are they not reasons now to be glad, to fill our mouths with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy? I know it's been a long and hard road, and I don't know where God is leading us next. I trust our, our session, um, our elders and Pastor Rob and the building committee doing their due diligence, and God's going to use that. So I don't know where God is going to have us next. But I do know this. He's promised one day to bring us all the way home. Would you pray with me? Father God, give us imaginations to see your glory as it is revealed in your word and it is revealed in the way you shape the circumstances of our lives. Give us imagination and wonder Help us to dream. Help us to be the dreamers of Zion. By the power of your spirit, in the name of your son Jesus, amen.